don't think there's really any any question over whether we're where we're going to start. Uh, let's not stand on ceremony. Let's get straight into it. Bath 37, Ulster 14. Two seasons in a row where Ulster have been firmly second best in their opening European game of the season, and now they are up against it when it comes to qualifying for the Champions Cup knockouts. Even more so than last season after the change of format, I would probably say. Uh, but Jonathan, I think the most important question that we're all thinking. Has your opinion on the wreck changed after that performance? No, I still really, uh, I still really enjoy the wreck, <laughs> um, despite the results. Despite um, I got a really good look at the stadium, walking the whole way around it twice, trying to find someone that had my accreditation. <laughs> uh, but no, I thoroughly enjoyed my time. I was the last person to leave there. Actually, I thought uh, I thought I was going to get locked in. That was how much I was enjoying myself. <laughs> what kept you so long? Work, lots and lots of work. <laughs> I can't, I can't imagine, you know, being the last one out of it. Well, I have been a couple of times at uh, at Ravenhill, just trying to get things done. But usually, whenever you're going uh, going to an away venue, you can uh, just go back to the hotel and finish off any work. But fair play, not in this digital age, Adam. I had to get all my copy over the years as soon as I could. <laughs> exactly. Um, <clears throat> Let's get stuck straight in. Uh, where do you think that went so poorly for Ulster? I mean, up 14-8 at halftime. By the end of the game, they've shipped 29 unanswered points and are on the end of what is a hammering. It was a pretty depressing afternoon. Yeah, where did it go wrong? I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, <laughs> shipping 29 points without scoring any is probably where it went wrong. I was actually interested watching it back that the performance wasn't as bad as I thought it had been and before people stop listening in droves I mean that I thought that they were completely blown out of the water and beat out of the gate and then looking back on it there was probably more good things in it I was going to say encouraging but encouraging is the wrong word there were probably more positive involvements in the game than I got the impression watching it in the ground when I watched it back on TV and I was thinking about why that is, and I think it's just because anyone who's watched enough Ulster this year could see that coming. Because if you watch back, you know, watching it back, BT Sport, or sorry, TNT Sport as it is now, were actually quite complimentary about a lot of things Ulster were doing. You know, they said deserved halftime lead and Brian O'Driscoll uh, maybe not just wanting the Ulster populace <laughs> to uh, jump on him in the way they did after that basket case comment a few years back. Um, seemed to be quite encouraged about what he'd been watching. Whereas watching it live in the stadium, I just thought it was a, a disaster for really 60 of the 80 minutes. I thought they had a good opening 10 minutes and then they had a burst of six minutes where they scored two tries and everything else. I thought Bath dominated now that probably was it probably wasn't as one-sided whenever I watched it back but I think it's because we've now watched enough Ulster this year we have a big enough sample size that all the giant chasms that developed in the second half if you've watched that team enough this year you could see the fault lines emerging in the first half and I'm talking about the inaccuracy that's plagued them it was a great break from Stuart Murray, but you see the ball thrown into touch. Ulster threw two passes into touch throughout the game. There was another one that I actually think was ultimately costlier from uh, from Nick Timoney. And you could see 
so actually whenever that ball from Stuart Moore goes into touch Bath then give away a free kick at the line out and you can see uh, Kitchell bumping the fist together saying take the scrum take the scrum I'm like okay <laughs> if you're sure <laughs> and Ulster give away a free kick at the scrum then Timoney whenever he passes the ball out of touch Bath go for the scrum get the upper hand in the scrum they play off advantage They don't, so it doesn't count as a penalty but they play off advantage this is an Ulster team that's given away 19 penalties in 7 games at the scrum in the ERC so they play off the advantage but you got the sense there I think that Bath realised that they could take Ulster in the scrum that they not even the side that they could take them they'll have known they could take them going in but I think off that they knew that they had them and then they go down they miss the penalty and then the next time that they get a penalty five metres out there's no <laughs> messing about with kicking to the post there's no kicking to the corner scrum 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 and they, they, that's how they score their first try again with penalty advantage which doesn't count as a penalty in the grand scheme of stats but is a penalty Johnny's just keeping a track of all these penalty advantages that are coming and you're going to whip out some random stat like also conceded 30 penalty advantages well there was the a number of penalty advantages in this game if people remember Zebra actually scored off penalty advantage in the first game as well Like, so all I mean is that the 19 penalties that they've conceded in the ERC's first seven games so that averages out at 2.7 a game but it's actually the picture is worse than that because of the number of advantages where obviously teams have the freedom to play and it's a big thing to be playing on advantage we've you know we saw that in uh, that game on Saturday like Ben Spencer's pass was unbelievable for that Cognizant single try but does he try such an ambitious pass if they're not playing off advantage? Probably not. So it's a it's a big thing, and it get, it it gets lost in the stat sheets. But that was all in the first half. So Ulster are leading fourteen eight at the end of the first half. But all these problems with inaccuracy, all these problems with the set piece, are already apparent. And then you're coming away, and you're thinking, oh, they they got you know you're walking out of the ground. And you're thinking, they got battered there, absolutely battered. And then you're watching it back and you're, well, it was only a four-point game with like 15 minutes to go, you know, when Matty Ray gets the yellow card. But you could see the problems with discipline and they're averaging more than 10 penalties a game. We've seen that throughout the season. So you can see these things happening before they do. It's like watching a car crash in slow motion. So people that will not have watched every Ulster game this season, maybe do come away from that game having watched it on TV, dipping into the Champions Cup and focus on the fact that it was nip and tuck for large parts of it up until the yellow card. But I think if you've watched enough Ulster, I think you could see that happening before it did. And I think that's why you get the different impressions from watching the game live to watching it back and maybe even more importantly, watching it back with commentary and analysis that's more positive than what you think you're, you saw live, you know? I think what gives me the impression that it's the bigger 
margin of defeat than it actually is is the fact that Ulster barely landed a blow on Bath after they scored the second try and even you look at the tries the second try is a great try I'm, I'm not trying to uh, take away from the fact that that was a brilliantly executed and well thought out try off counter-attacking ball but the first try they nearly bungle apart from the fact that I, I don't know who the Bath player who was that kicked it but he kicks it straight into the path of Billy Burns who has a walk-in. Yeah, it was Lawrence, I think, who's oh, class yeah. apart from yeah. Else. Um, so he, th- that's a, a fluky try. They score a great try off counter-attacking ball, which fair enough, give them full credit for that. But then after that, and this is a genuine question, you probably know this better than I do. Were Ulster in the bath half with possession in well, the entirety of the second half? See, this is the thing because they start the second half, Bath mess up the kickoff and this comes back to the scrum so Bath mess up the kickoff Ulster end up with a scrum in Bath territory but again Bath get the pressure on the scrum Ben Spencer comes around and scrags Nathan Duke at the base Ulster still just about get the ball away but again they're playing off bad ball because of a bad scrum and then they're on the back foot and they get turned over uh, James McNabney it was with the breakdown penalty and then, you know, they get into the bath half through a penalty and Rob Herring gets stripped in the mall or there's the forward pass to Kitchoff that's in a decent attacking position, not in the 22, but in a decent attacking position. And then you've got the line out where sort of McNabney comes around the side of Henderson but ends up in front of him and then they get done for crossing in the line. All those are opportunities to get a foothold into the half. So you come away thinking that Ulster had nothing in that half, that they just didn't do a single thing to influence the game in that uh, second half in an attacking sense. When you drill down it, they had three relatively big opportunities of varying sizes that we're not able to make look like opportunities because of the feelings that we've seen all season. Well, that, Yeah, and that's the concern for me is that even if they did have those opportunities, they never managed to get a foothold. It never felt like Ulster were applying any pressure. They had those little moments, but there was no point where you really felt like Ulster were really pushing to get back into that game. Like whenever Bath went 18-14 up, yes, it's a four-point game, but just as the half, with every decreasing minute, there just felt that sense of almost hopelessness that Ulster just didn't have it in them to come back even from four points down. Like but do you it, not think a huge part of that comes down to the scrum? Because oh, absolutely. There's nothing more demoralising than just ha- not having a scrum. So like, and the flip side of that is Bath always felt that they had the advantage in the scrum. And maybe people think that I'm talking about the scrum too much or maybe th- people think I've been writing about the scrum too much this week. But for me, that's where it begins and ends because that's where Bath looked at that team and let's like let, let's not beat around the bush if you compare those two team sheets one to 23 and I think Ulster had a definite advantage in the bench like one to 23 regardless of where Bath are going he- trajectory wise headed the Ulster team is still better on paper mm-hmm. now rugby's played on grass or rugby should be played on grass it's not played on paper but if you look at where Bath I think 
in in that game, within the game, not before the game, but within the game, looked at that and said, we have these boys. Mm-hmm. It was the scrum. Yeah, and even if you take that point, if you look at Ulster's front three, it's World Cup winning Springbok, someone who is on the verge of the Ireland team, who is keeping Ireland's number three hooker out of the team, be it due to injury or, or for whatever reason, Dan decided to start Tom over Rob. Um, who, who is, you know, Tom Stewart has been informed for the past year and a half. Um, and an Ireland prop who went to the World Cup backed by uh, all right Alan O'Connor's maybe not having the best of seasons but Ian Henderson is an Ireland lock as well he's your captain that's a robust front five you had everybody available that you're going to have available like at the start of the season whenever the scrum was struggling most especially against Zebra but also against Munster two games that Ulster actually won Um, now it struggled at other times throughout the season but those were the those were the games where at the end of the Zebra game and in the first half against Munster where the opposition were just taking scrum, taking scrum, taking scrum because they knew that Ulster couldn't do anything to get out. Now, against Zebra, they ultimately did. That was how that was how they won the game. Against Munster, it was going to be a penalty try um, and a yellow card for Ulster if not for the fact that Munster scored again when playing off, playing off advantage. So this was another game where there was that sense of the word that you used was hopelessness. And there's a sense of futility because we all know that in those situations, all it takes is a referee to, you know, we see it time and time again where the referee has a few resets and then all of a sudden gives a penalty against the dominant scrum. But it never felt like it was going to happen here. But like whenever we talk about Monster and we talk about Zebra, there was a rotating cast of characters in that Tight f- in those tight five positions and on the bench. Like Ulster had everybody available for this game. So you really love the names. But you also had Andy Warwick, he is your, if not your second best Lucid, then your best second best scrummaging Lucid. Like we've seen O'Sullivan play as well, but this season. But O'Sullivan was fit for the game. So um, Treadwell was on the bench, Herring was on the bench. And Marty Murray's on the bench. So those are your, those are all of your op- frontline options in the tight five. And the scrum's still getting battered. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I don't know where you go from there to improve it. And it wasn't even like the personnel coming on off the bench changed it. The scrum was just an issue the whole way through. Like well, had- to be fair, I think they had maybe one solid scrum after the <laughs> It was a very temporary reprieve. But Abano had. O'Toole on toast all game and then whenever Murr came on it was like he took one scrum to get adjusted to the new man and then had him on toast for the rest of the game Like and Never a good sign when the opposing loose head gets man of the match yeah, Never a good sign uh, But it, it even extends beyond the scrum as well like the scrum was the primary issue but they mauled Ulster over once which is just something that you never expect to see from an Ulster side and How yet did they get there? Well, they it, got there off a scrum penalty a scrum and penalty. then a breakdown penalty. So, so piggybacking penalties, because that was another issue that they have and have had all season of just allowing mistakes to lead to mistakes to lead to mistakes. And, you know, I asked Ian Henderson about this afterwards and sort of spoke about, you know, just needing to make sure that your next involvement is a positive one. And again, we spoke about this earlier in the season whenever we were talking about younger players and how inexperience can lead to that sort of thing. But again... 
that's Ulster's first choice team with the exception of Will Addison being injured. So, yeah. And Dave McCann. Dave McCann, we'll sorry. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, give, we'll give him credit. Dave McCann's in, in there. Uh, well, Dave McCann's actually been a massive miss. Yeah, he has been. And look, I don't think he would have been able to change that result into anything else because as we say it was lost in the scrum like there there were other factors the breakdown the breakdown has not been good since uh, no. since McCann's been injured and you look at a team that even with those five really good games from McCann again we're talking about being able to anticipate these problems because Europe is better than the ERC so whenever you step up things that are a problem in the ERC are going to be more of a problem. Like Ulster are 15th in the ERC in turnovers. There's 16 teams in the ERC. Mm-hmm. So obviously they have a problem in being able to influence the breakdown in the way that they need to. And McCann this season was their best breakdown player. So what's the solve for the scrum? I mean, I, I know we're getting into dark arts here. Neither of us have played front row in our lives. Uh, I barely played beyond fourth year of high school. Um, like how... Uh, how do Ulster get better at scrummaging? Because it's it's not just uh, flick the switch, we, we do better. Scrummaging is very much a, you've either got to find a way to, and I don't want to say cheat, but maybe game the system a little bit and get referees on your side, or you've got to find a way to push better. I mean, am I simplifying this too much? Or is well, that I right? mean, I asked Dan McFarland about it afterwards. He is obviously the, you know, the side don't have a specialist scrum coach because their head coach is a former prop. So I'm responsible for that in terms of a coaching point of view. We've got good personnel out there. There might be a mindset around that. There might be the amount of time we spend on it in training. We're playing against some good scrums, some very experienced scrums. I thought in that second half we did a good job of shoring that up, but it's definitely something that we'll put our head to. I don't want to get too bogged down in the specifics because I think we need to talk about the general malaise here, you know, three games in a row with Rousing coming to town this week, Connett and Belfast the week after. Connett, we don't know what team they're going to send up, but Connett obviously have no fears about playing in Belfast after what they did last May, going down to the RDS. Then on New Year's Day, a ground where, with the exception of two years ago, you never win. And you've got Toulouse coming to Belfast and then you go to Harlequins. Harlequins who Ulster have a good recent record against but just went to Rousing and beat Rousing in Paris. So I suppose the real question is how many wins do you see out of that group of games? Because if it's not a relatively decent number then you're looking at a run if not parallel, maybe even worse to what they were going on this time last year. I mean, Ulster, by getting no points from this game, have really hamstrung themselves. Like, I th- With no disrespect to Cardiff, I think we still expect Ulster to at least finish fifth and end up at least in the Challenge Cup, which isn't a good outcome, but we, d- we don't think that they're going to finish bottom. Well, maybe if they keep putting in performances like that, they could. And Cardiff, <laughs> say if it comes down to points difference. Well, Cardiff could sneak a, Cardiff a losing bonus thump, point somewhere, yeah. But, you know, Toulouse already have five points. Bath have five points. Quinns have five points. 
Racing, even though they lost, have two points. You know, feasibly, if if Ulster lose this weekend, they could find themselves five points down with only two games to turn it around. And most of the teams above them will still have Cardiff to play at least well, once. Yes, that's like, exactly exactly the thing. It's the thing that I've been talking about since the summer, but or since the draw was made with the new format, but it becomes more pronounced now. Everybody else gets to play Cardiff. So if Ulster are playing catch-up on a team that are going to be on... Sorry, Ulster are playing catch-up and every other team will have a game where they are heavy favourites. Ulster aren't going to be heavy favourites in any of those games. So if they get to a point where they're 0 from 2 and everybody else has at least one win and two of those four teams ahead of them will have a game against Cardiff to come, you're in a really, really bad situation mm. there. Well, but Bath play Cardiff this week. So Bath, it, if Bath could be 10 points. Yeah. Or sorry, Bath should be 10 points. Yeah. I mean, let, let's say theoretically, I, I know we're being extremely doom and gloom, but let, you've got to consider this. Let's say Ulster get nothing against Racing this weekend. Bath could already be out of sight by the end of this weekend. Uh, Racing wouldn't quite be out of sight, but they've still got Cardiff to come. So they, they could be on six or seven. So we'll say they're out of sight, technically. Uh, Quinn's play to lose. One of those is going to win. So one of them is already on at least nine points, if not ten. Like you're already at a position where Ulster can't overtake three of the teams that they need to in order to get into the top four. And we're not even at Christmas. We should so. point out that historically speaking, historically speaking, this is exactly the kind of conversation that precedes an Ulster victory. Exactly. Maybe that's what we're trying to do. Like in this type of fixture. We're, subconsciously we're trying to, to will them back in. But I mean, th- th- this is the, and I suppose this moves it on to one of our listener questions that we got uh, from Donal O'Reilly, which is saying, and you, you've kind of mentioned the, the run of fixtures that Ulster have, which is looking ahead, where is the next win coming from? But it's that feeling around Ulster right now of like... You just don't know where that next win is coming from. It feels very much like last year's run, where they just it it just felt like okay, well they're gonna get a win here because they're playing you know they're playing Connaught and they should win. Oh, they've lost, or they're sorry they're playing Munster and they're coming up to to Ravenhill and Munster bring half a team. They should win this. Ulster have their full team out. Oh, they've lost. Like it, it just feels very much like where are you finding the next win because the team out there just looks so devoid of confidence right now. Yes. And I still think they'll beat Connacht in Belfast because I think the Interpros being what the Interpros are, I think Connacht will send a team that also should beat. That's not going to make anybody feel any better. Or sorry, that shouldn't make anybody feel any better about Ulster and the way that they're playing. Because it's a no-win situation for Ulster apart from in the strictest sense of winning the game and getting the four or five points. Because if they win, it's a game that they should win. And if they lose, it becomes an absolute disaster. But, like, we're getting ahead of ourselves, I suppose, because really, if Dono's asking, where does the next win come from? Winning against Connacht in Belfast is a non-negotiable. But if that's where the next win comes from, then it means that Ulster are in serious difficulties because it means that they've lost harassing. Mm-hmm. Are there any positives to take from Bath? Like any, I, I know we're saying there were little flashes, but even though you, you can't hold on to little flashes, you know, is there anything that you take from that game? And you're like, 
Ulster did do that well, and that's something you can hang on to for for racing. No, the, the point that you make is entirely correct. Like we spoke all season about Ulster being inconsistent, not even in terms of results, and obviously they're the definition of inconsistent in terms of results because they played eight and won four and lost four. But they're inconsistent within games. And the worry is that those purple patches in games are getting shorter and not longer against better opposition. So, yes, you could look at look at it and say that they actually had a pretty good defensive set in that first 10 minutes. And then James Hume makes the man and ball tackle. I can't quite remember on who it was. But then you have the attack where Stuart Moore... Um, Stuart Moore breaks the line and then the pass out to Balakun. That's all in the first 10 minutes. So you had that spell and then you had obviously the four-minute spell where you score all of the points that you scored in the game. So if you're saying, are there any positives? There are those spells, but that's all tempered by the fact that those spells are getting shorter and shorter when there's a step up in class of opposition. We saw the same thing against Glasgow. And we saw it to a lesser degree against Edinburgh, where Ulster can play have these bursts where they show what they're capable of, where they look like they are equal to or greater than the sum of their parts rather than less than the sum of their parts. And whenever you have a game this weekend against Racing, who have a lot of excellent parts to select from and choose from, I mean, I watched them against Harlequins and it was a cracking game, actually. I've, I've got to say uh, but they're coming to to Belfast knowing that they probably need to put in a, a performance in order to get a win and try and solidify that that top four spot because a home loss is rather damaging in this competition even if you get two points yeah I suppose what's going to be interesting and this is a quite a sizable about turn for me because I had Racing as my third favourites in this competition. But you wonder if they look at the fact that they still have to go to Bath and the fact that they're coming to Belfast this weekend. You would wonder if they look at... I don't think they will, but you would wonder if they look at it and think, should we be throwing our eggs into the top 14 where they're obviously going so well? You know, they've got a game against Oyana next weekend um, in the top 14. Great time. So it's quite, it's conceivable anyway. I, the only reason I would disagree with that is again because of this, you can drop down into the Challenge Cup. <laughs> which, I, which I don't think they would want. Like, yeah, by, that's by getting, a good point actually. Courtesy of getting two points against Harlequins. They're already guaranteed to finish above Cardiff. So <laughs> I, I feel bad. Like, listen, if anybody from Cardiff is listening to this podcast, I do apologise. I love your city, but your team's not good this season. Cardiff um, fans are probably, or, well, I don't know why any Cardiff fans would be listening, but if they were, they'd probably be missing. <laughs> <laughs> they'd probably be agreeing. <laughs> if, if they finish on zero points, it's only because they didn't get to play Ulster. Um, <laughs> so, you know, by, by, by getting those two points, they, they've probably locked up at least fifth, but if you're going to go into a European competition in the latter half of the season, you want it to be the Champions Cup. And Yeah, it's a good point, actually, that I hadn't really thought about, that if you're going to uh, throw the tile in in Europe, you have to do it comprehensively now so that you avoid going into the Challenge Cup because mm-hmm. you, uh, 
well, I suppose you're much more likely to get a away trip that you don't want if you do that because if you dro- drop down then you're guaranteed to be away certainly in the last 16 but yeah. you're most likely to be away for the remainder unless the seedings flip as mm-hmm. in some high seeds getting knocked out but um, well, we, we were talking about potential Challenge Cup opponents for a com- completely un- unrelated reason not not to do with the fact that we think Ulster could potentially drop into the Challenge Cup but you know you, you do have the potential of playing a team, you know, like a South African team, you could end up getting a job to South Africa, which that late in the season, if you haven't already factored it in because of the URC schedule, is not helpful in the slightest. And especially for a French or an English team who aren't used to travelling to South Africa, especially that late in the season. So yeah. it, it wouldn't be bad for Ulster. Sorry, it wouldn't be as bad for Ulster because they're actually in South Africa before the first round of knockouts. Mm-hmm. But, Just make it a three-week trip. <laughs> but... It's, it, it is a thing that you have to consider, which is that teams now have that sort of incentive not to finish fifth. I think a lot of teams, and this is no disrespect to the Challenge Cup, which is a, it's a good competition for the teams that start in it. You know, I'd, I think every team that goes into the Challenge Cup initially has a desire to win it. But for teams that drop down from the Champions Cup, it's just a massive kick because, you know, you, it's not the competition you want to be in. You'd rather almost be like, we had a crack at the Champions Cup, we didn't make it, we don't have any knockout rugby to look forward to. Whereas teams who started in the Challenge Cup, I think are much more inclined to want to win it. Yeah, like there was something to feel fans over the weekend who were sort of saying like, you know, well, it wouldn't be the worst thing because you could win it. Now that, I suppose, one point on that is that Ulster did do this before and then not win it. Um <laughs> And two is, does it really feel like you're ending your silverware out if you do it with a second tier competition? It's not to knock the competition, but like everybody knows what the big competition is. It's a bit like West Ham fans going everywhere this season and singing Champions of Europe. You'll never sing that. It's like winning a third tier European competition does not make you champion. You know, I don't know. I don't know how much a challenge cup win would engender an ability to give you more confidence about Ulster in knockout rugby, which is something that they've struggled with over the years. I think it's five five wins and 14 knockout ties um, under Dan McFarland. Two of those coming in the, in the Challenge Cup, actually. But if they go and win the Challenge Cup, I don't think it's going to be people are going to look at that as a springboard to, oh, well, they've cracked knockout rugby in truth we're not even really talking about knockout rugby being the issue anymore that was something that we were talking about two years ago of you know how do they find the winning formula in knockout rugby because knockout rugby is one thing but like we're just talking about in general now you know you go back through their last 25 games and they've lost 13 of them and it's easy to say you know as is often brought up in this conversation of, oh, you need to contextualise that. And to contextualise it is to say, well, two of those games have been against Leinster, two of them have been against La Rochelle, two of them have been against Glasgow, two of them have been... No, sorry, not two. They also got beat by Bath, Sale, Edinburgh, Connacht. So that's that run I like. Uh, sorry, Benetton as well. That's that run, if you like, of the last 25 games in those 13 defeats. 
So you can look at all of those and say, well, that's either against decent teams in the case of Benetton and Edinburgh, good teams in the case of, I suppose, Glasgow, really. Glasgow and Sale, probably. Bath, you could put in that. Glasgow this season, yeah, you have them yeah. as a good team. Very good teams, which you can say Munster. Now, they probably weren't a very good team at the time, but they went on <laughs> to win the league that year. So let's say they're a very good team. And then absolutely top tier teams in Leinster and La Rochelle. So it's fair enough to say that you need to contextualise that. But I'll say, I'll say this. Let's contextualise it in a different way. If Ulster have 13 losses against decent to brilliant teams, let's say, when in your mind was the last time that they beat a decent to brilliant team who came up with their full strength team? We've had this discussion on the podcast before. Like, when was the Ulster's last significant victory? I'm genuinely asking because it's semantics. Yeah. Like, and it's, like do you say that a way to Zebra was. Absolutely, a decent absolutely, victory. Yes, yeah, like. and I would say no because if Ulster had have lost, regardless of what anybody says about Zebra getting better, if Ulster had have lost, that it would have been viewed as as a oh. disaster. And that's what I sort of mean. Like, when was the last time Ulster won a game where if they didn't win it, that you wouldn't have viewed it as a sizable setback? Are you going back to the Sharks away? I was going to say, does that class as one? Not really. No. Because they didn't have their Springboks. Now, going away and winning in South Africa is an achievement. I don't think you can say that it isn't because of how few teams do it. But you also have to say that the Sharks didn't have their Springboks at that time. Their last... And also the Sharks also aren't that good in terms of results. Their, Their last big win you'd probably say was the first leg of that Champions Cup last 16 game in Toulouse. Oh, well they, beat, they beat Munster in a quarterfinal after that. Yeah, but Munster... <sighs> I think an, an intra-pro quarterfinal against a full-strength opposition has to be seen as a good... But that okay. that means that you're saying that they didn't have one of those wins last year. And I think people might say whenever they beat the Bulls and whenever they beat the Stormers, I think... I think for me, I don't think you can go any further back than Seal in January. But even that's 11 months ago, if you're not going to say that winning against the Sharks or beating a decent but not great Bulls team at home at the end of last season or at the start of this season. It depends on your definition of significant. No, I, I would I would probably agree. Like the, the Sharks game is kind of bordering on it because I think again to use that important word of contextualize, it's a it's a trip to South Africa that you weren't expecting to make. Ulster were bringing over a, a shadow side of their own. Like they were a little bit stronger than we thought they might be for that game, but for the most part, it wasn't the strongest team that they could have sent over. And you know given that it it was sort of like a it wasn't last minute per se it was scheduled well in advance but it wasn't a game that they were factoring in they went over and won but would I would I put it into that bracket of wins that you sort of look back on and go that was a an impressive win that was a significant win probably not I would be going 
Impressive is probably the right word. Impressive is the way to describe it, I suppose. Yes. And I think beating the Sharks was impressive. You've got, Beyond that, you've got like wins against Edinburgh at home, wins against the Dragons at home, wins against the Bulls at home, Cardiff away. These are all games where if Ulster had have lost them, you would have thought it was a really bad result. Stormers at home was at the end of January. And the reason that I'm sort of banging on about this in case people are like, what relevance does this have? It's because we will hear that Ulster are only losing to good teams. But if you don't beat good teams and you only beat bad teams, then you yourself are an average team. Mm -hmm. And Ulster are not a team with average talent. So that's why 13 losses in 25 games should be stark. And again, people might say that I'm cherry picking because I'm starting that run with the loss to Leinster, with Keane Lee's red card. But even if you like stretch it out to say two seasons, that still means that Ulster have lost 14 of 31, which isn't very good either. It's better, but it's not very good either. It's, it's just over a 50% win record. Yeah, I looked at it. So they're, it's for, 48% in the last 25 games, but it's 56% in the last two seasons. Yeah. So... It's not great either. It's that averages to winning approximately nine out of every eighteen sorry, nine out of every seventeen games. So like at what point do we <laughs> say that the results that Ulster are putting on the field is the team that they are? Like how long does your sample size need to be? And it's a fair point, uh, because for so long we talk about you know, Ulster are a team just they're not living up to their potential. But to bring up those stats suggests that this they is are the team that they are. Yeah, this is the team that they are. And I think whenever you look at even how this season has started, and I'm, this is going to sound like an about turn for me as well. And so I'm going to sort of contextualize this too, which is that if you look at the start of the season where they're struggling to put away Zebra, they're struggling to put away the Lions, they, all right, they beat Munster. I'm not going to say they struggled to put them away because that was a closely contested game, but you know it wasn't a convincing win. Lose to Glasgow, lose to Connacht, and then lose to Edinburgh. While I do think that part of that can be down to chopping and changing the team and trying to get some guys minutes and seeing what you have at your disposal, it is starting to become par for the course in terms of where Ulster's results are and while I do think that there needs to be a longer term view towards how this team improves and looking at the likes of McNabney and saying you learn from this Bath game, you learn from this Edinburgh game and you're going to be better for this and you're going to be an important member of our squad and the same with the likes of Harry Sheridan whose absence has been surprising at the start of the season but I figure is going to be a big part of Ulster's future. The likes of Tom Stewart, Reuben Crothers, Jude Postlewaite. Um, you know, it's about giving these guys the chances to learn from their mistakes alongside, you know, experienced guys. But equally, you know, we're now in a position where we're where the season is starting to go a bit off the rails because you've had these three losses in a row and none of them have been overly close and the bath one I think has just sort of hit the to, to use the phrase that you used whenever you were uh, 
doing your uh, what we learned things from uh, from the game in, in Monday's paper, which you can read online at the Beltel or Beltel website. Um, it's just the tip of the iceberg, which is that this could be a a precipitous slide, which they had last season, and I think this season would almost look a bit worse because of how things have been going. Well, it looks worse because it's not a blip anymore. Like yeah. your sample size doesn't become two months anymore; it becomes fourteen months if you don't get out of this slide before the break for the Six Nations. But like, you know, we had the listener question from Stephen Kirkpatrick about: Do you have much confidence in the direction of travel of this Ulster side can be changed? And the longer it goes on, then the less confidence you have that you're going to change something with the same group of players and the same group of coaches, because. Yes, you can say that they can take confidence from the fact that they still finished second in the ERC and made the knockouts of Europe after such a run last year. But that 13 losses in 25, the longer that goes and the longer that you, exactly what we're talking about, the bigger the sample size, then the more likely it is that you just have to look at it and say, this is actually what this team is anymore. This is what this team is now. Like, you know, if a team gets average results for two seasons, then do we continue to say that they're a good team getting average results? Because at the end of the day, eventually you become what you're putting on the field. Mm. And again, you know, you're talking about it would feel worse this season. And again, just as a addition to that listener question, nothing is working well at the moment. Scrum, line out, defense, attack, kicking game. And like I wrote about this last week, that... Part of the reason that you have to be concerned about what they're doing and part of the reason that you have to be concerned about even the wins that they've been having is the phrase that I used was they don't have anything to hang their hat on. Like we don't know. I think Donal asked about this as well, like the issue of identity and whether you liked it or not, last year they were, <clears throat> sorry, last year they were viewed as a hard-nosed mauling team and people didn't like that. I didn't like it particularly either, but people didn't like it, but it was an identity. Whereas to the point that Stephen makes and the point that I was talking about last week in the paper, they're not doing anything well. Like you can go through it and they're eighth in tries. So they're not attacking particularly well. They're 12th in clean breaks. They're not particularly exciting to watch. They're 16th in line-out success. They are, as we talked about, being penalized 19 times in the scrum, so they're not a good set-piece team. And I think it's the, is it the ninth most try? They've considered the ninth most tries in the league, so they're not particularly uh, strong defensively and certainly not, as we talked about, strong getting the ball back when they don't have it defensively. So at present on this eight-game sample size of what we've seen this season, like what does this team do well? Like we don't know. I mean, it all paints a very optimistic picture heading into Saturday's game against Racing. If you don't have tickets for that game yet, why would you bother going based on what we're saying here? Um, well, you'd go to see some of the uh, blockbuster names on the on the opposition side. I mean, yeah, you could see Khaleesi, you could, yep. uh, um, I suppose if you can get there, because I think there's a translink strike, isn't there? There is indeed. So if anybody is going to the game, make sure you're aware of that. And uh, I feel bad for the residents of Mount Marion who are going to have to deal with the extra influx of cars coming their way. Um, Whenever you look at this game, how do Ulster win this? 
Because we feel like they have to. How do Ulster win a game against a team like Racing whenever they're on the run they're at right now? Because you, you can't just rely on the Raven Hill factor on, or well, under what's the Saturday night, light, night lights instead of the Friday night lights. But they used to be able to do that. And I understand that this is almost reductive and it's not, like I'm not talking about this being um, a high piece of analysis here, but that is almost what they need to get back to. Like they need to get back to the idea that really good French teams do not want to come here. <laughs> like that is part of it. Whether you want to say it's the atmosphere or whether you want to say it's the fact that Ulster have lost home European knockout games to Toulouse. They've lost a ERC knockout game to Connacht. People are looking at it, even Edinburgh winning last time out, people are looking at it and saying, well, we can go up to Ravenhill and win. You know, is it as tough a place to go as it was? And it's not. Like, the, the stats bear that out. It's just not as tough a place to go as it once was. But I think it has to be a huge part of it. They have to have that backs-to-the-wall mentality and again none of this is technical this is more of a an attitude thing it's like Henderson talked afterwards about that chip on the shoulder and you need to see that coming out you need to in the first 10-15 minutes you need to make Rassing think that they'd rather be anywhere else in the world than Belfast on a Saturday night in December above that if you want to be more technical like they, they, this is what we're saying. They need to get. They need to improve everything because you can pick holes with what they're doing in the set piece. You can pick holes with the amount of holes that they're picking in the opposition in attack. You can pick holes with what they're doing defensively in terms of how much pressure they're putting themselves under and how they're dealing with that pressure. But all of those things need to be better. All of those things needed to be better coming into last Saturday, and they weren't. So. This is a huge game. I think you're right in saying that it's a potentially defining game of the European season because, yes, they were able to scrape into the last 16 last time around. And credit to them for that because they had to stop the rot to do that at a time when confidence has to have been low. But you're, the different format means that you're not going to be able to do that, I don't think, off one win. And I think if you're looking at it and looking at the, the games that they still have to play, like if you're on one point after two games with Toulouse to come and a trip to Harlequins, then I think you're going to be in the Challenge Cup. Mm-hmm. And that's just not where Ulster want to be. It might be a better... Not when there's 16 option. teams in the knockout. It's like, yeah. whatever you want to say about them dropping into it before, they dropped into it before because of the Champions Cup pool stage is being curtailed by COVID. So this would be the first time ever, and yes, it's a different format, but this would be the first time ever that a Champions Cup, Heineken Cup, European Cup pool stage has been played to completion and Ulster have dropped into the Challenge Cup. And I mean, if you look at the teams that could be dropping in also from the Champions Cup, like you could potentially have Connacht in there. Um, I mean, well, currently the teams that would be dropping in are, after one game, I mean, yeah, yeah, after after one game, but just just to use it as a small sample size is Saracens, Toulon, and the Stormers. Now, yes, we do think that is going to change because of uh, 
other results as the competition goes on but ju- just to use that as a small sample size of the teams that are currently in fifth like there are other quality teams that are going to be dropping down in here and there are some quality teams in the challenge cup that you know we're not even considering like it's like Ulster have lost away to Gloucester in the not too distant yep. past you know there's Claremont in there Ulster have won in Claremont but they've also lost in Claremont you know yep and that range of South African teams, including Ruan Pienaarch Cheetahs. I do not want to go back to Bloemfontein. I'm sorry. Give me Oyana over Bloemfontein any day. <laughs> they nearly lost an Oyana. Again, we're going back quite a ways here. But I didn't get to go to the Steam Museum last time we were there, so I'm determined to get back. The fact that you are going to be playing away in the Challenge Cup in the last 16 should focus the minds of should focus the minds on the fact that it's not a case of Ulster just drop down into this competition and go and win it. Mm-hmm. Like, even, again, to, again, one game is a sample size, but the three teams that are top of the polls right now are Sharks, Ospreys, and Cast. Now, they fancy their chances against the Ospreys, but Cast are a good team. Claremont are there having uh, beaten Edinburgh last time. Sharks... Not going well in the ERC, but a trip to South Africa or extending your South African trip is not ideal. So there's a there's a lot of pitfalls. Do Did we just start rooting for cast for the narrative value? I mean, I I just want a French trip. Like I don't, I don't care what competition Ulster are in, just a nice French trip in uh, late March, early April. I can't remember exactly what the what the dates are, but that would be ideal. It has been the real downside of this. Uh at this Champions Cup draw, to be honest. Uh, give me your prediction, Johnny. What do you think? Are Ulster going to do it this weekend? Why not? <laughs> there is the confident uh, assessment that we wanted. It just ha- it has the feeling of the sort of game... This is not based on anything rational. It just has the feeling of the sort of game where I would predict them to lose and they would go and win. Yeah. Ulster do... do- they still have this pension of just pulling out a European result whenever you least expect it. It reminds me more than anything else of... Do you remember when La Rochelle came to Belfast the first year they were good? Yes. It reminds me a bit of that. An Ulster one, was it 2013 or something? It was yeah. a really low-scoring game. Yeah, and very much afterwards the narrative was, well, everybody wrote us off. And I don't know if they've been written off as much... In fact, no, I would say they absolutely haven't been written off to such a degree since then. But as I say, there's no, you know, nothing that I've seen this season. I'm just, I'm talking about historically. (laughs) Nothing that I've seen this season makes me think that that's going to happen. It's just the fact that historically this is exactly when that type of result has happened. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna stick with I think this is going to be another tough week in Europe. I think though, I think they could get a point from it. And that'll be enough to solidify fifth place, uh, <laughs> and then we can we can start dreaming of a the way you the way you started that sentence. I was like, he sounds like he's going to say optimistic here, but no, no, just, of like, course not. I started the podcast on a negative vibe, and I feel like I'm going to end it on a negative vibe. But yes, Ulster take on Racing ninety two at Ravenhill on Saturday night, eight o'clock. 
a massive game there you can watch it on uh, well you can follow it on the Belltel website I will be doing the live blog Jonathan will be doing the report quotes everything else off the back of that um, or if you're more inclined to watch it on TV it is on TNT Sports Um just a quick look around uh, some of the other games before we go. Any other games stick out to you? I know you didn't get to watch all of them because you were in the air for some of them. Uh, but uh, anything else stand out for you? The, well, the Harlequins, uh, Harlequins Racing really did. Cracking one um, for Quince. No, I was aware of the score um, before watching it, but it was a very interesting game whenever I went to watch it back yesterday. Marcus Smith. All credit to him for that drop goal. Like that was a monster. That's Rob Carney esque. Yeah, the sort of the thing with it is that you're watching it being like uh, you're watching it thinking how it relates to this week, but then in the back of your head you're also thinking how it relates to uh, like four or five weeks down the line when also play Harlequins. Um, Northampton, Exeter, and Harlequins having those three away wins is massive because like I did this this time last year and I was wary enough not to do it this year off the basis of what happened last year but every time I watch the Premiership I'm just I'm not that impressed with the quality of it as opposed to watching like big ERC games or big French games I didn't go on record saying that this year after I said it before Ulster got trounced by sale Um, but it's going to be really interesting to watch how those English teams continue to go through these pool stages and even into the knockouts because they've been so poor in Europe. You know, it's one semi-finalist in the Champions Cup since the year that Exeter won it. That's such a poor record when there's only three leagues in it, you know. Um, So it'll be interesting to see if those guys can maintain that having made good starts and then obviously you can throw Bath into that mix as well as having made a a statement victory, if you like, first up, even though even though they were at home. Saracens will obviously be better. There's no... Uh, virtually everybody loses to the Bulls apart from... Sorry, away to the Bulls apart from other South African teams. Um, so that was not unexpected by any means. And I've, like, the, the Leinster-La Rochelle game was uh, engrossing. Again, another one that I watched aware of the what the score was, but... Um, an engrossing contest and one that I think has huge repercussions for Leinster in their efforts to win, but I don't think is too much of a knock on La Rochelle's ability to retain the tournament. Like I've seen people say, oh, well, they'll have a really difficult time, you know, having to go away for the rest of the tournament. Like we're talking about a team that beat Leinster in the Aviva yeah. last year, you know. Um, but it does. Beat Ulster in the Aviva last Well, <laughs> sorry, of course. <laughs> the gold standard <laughs> for being able to win away, beating Ulster when they're also away. Yeah. Um, <coughs> um, Get those buses on to Dublin this Saturday just in case. <laughs> it's mad to think that was a year ago. I know. But um, that La Rochelle Stormers game this weekend is now going to be really interesting mm. as well, off the back of La Rochelle having lost. Uh, First up, so yeah, not a weekend that I saw an awful amount of live rugby, but um, entertaining stuff nonetheless, and a number of results that really set it up for an entertaining weekend this weekend when I will 
presumably see a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to give Bordeaux a lot of credit. That win over Connacht on Friday night was very impressive. They're, they were one of the teams that I thought whenever I was looking at the fixtures, I was like, they're one of those ones that they could just kind of phone it in because they're away in Connacht. And with the greatest of respect, as much as we've enjoyed many trips together to the sports ground, it's not the most uh, sort of hospitable place in terms of the crowd and it is also a dog track as well, so it's it's not the most glamorous places to go and play rugby, but all credit to them. They showed up and they put in a heck of a performance and Damien Pinot is just continuing to be one of the most prolific scorers in, in rugby and uh, that to me has sort of made me reevaluate where I see them in relation to what they could potentially do in this tournament. They have a lot more stars than I remember them having whenever I was suddenly impressed by them. I thought, hmm, let's, let's look up their uh, their squad. And suddenly it's like, oh yeah, that's uh, that's who they've got. So very impressed by them. And hopefully uh, hopefully this weekend lives up to the standard that, that week one has set. Uh, so that is... Uh, for us on Beltel Rugby this week uh, we hope you enjoy your rugby wherever you are but we do finish with sad news that broke over the weekend which is that former Ulster Ireland and British and Irish Lions rugby star Sid Miller has died aged 89 um, he was the chairman of the International Rugby Board for four years between 2003 and 2007 he was also president of the Irish Rugby Football Union he would coach the Lions in 1974 Ireland from 1973 to 1975 he was team manager for the Lions and Ireland as well uh, a titan of the game uh, and a wonderful wonderful man I never had the pleasure of meeting him unfortunately but Anyone that you speak to says he was just an absolutely wonderful gentleman and uh, we pass on our sympathies to his uh, daughter Leslie and his sons Peter and Johnny at this sad time. May he rest in peace.